0: Hello everybody, happy October! This is another episode of Curator's Choice, and I'm your host, Ayla Anderson, and I'm kind of doing a fun October in West and West Virginia mini series. So for the entire month of October, I'm going to be doing two of the regular episodes that I put out on the first and third Tuesday of the month, and I'm also going to be doing the two bonus episodes during the second and fourth week of the month, and we're going to be spending every one of those episodes in Weston and so the first one today is going to be at the Museum of American Glass. We're speaking with Larry Woods and he's going to tell us all about this incredible history of American Glass which I myself had no idea about nor had I ever really thought about it but it's really interesting and pretty much a, a big part of American history And we're going to talk with him about this incredible 13-room dollhouse that is completely created out of like 1,200 pieces of glass. And it's this miniature house that they have on display with like a rotating fish tank inside. I mean, it's really amazing. And then we're also going to talk about their incredible Steuben art collection, which for us refined folk, you will already know, but uh, Steuben is uh, one that is considered the finest crystal that you can find because of its reflective characteristics. So they got a huge collection um, given to them, so they display that. But before we quite get to the episode, I just wanna give you a sneak peek of what the month of October is going to look like. So we had the episode today about American glass. And then next week, the bonus episode is going to be at a place called Appalachian Glass, which is a hometown glass company. When we went and visited Weston to do the American Museum of American Glass, we stopped and just happened upon this man who had he and his father have this glass company and they create glass fixtures right there in front of you while they're giving you an oral history of glass in West Virginia. So we're going to be speaking with Todd about his him and his dad's company about Appalachian Glass. And then I also for the regular episode, we're going to be going to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum and we're going to talk about the history there, some of the things that happened, and I thought what a perfect month, you know, October, to talk about these things, and so we're going to be doing that episode, and then another extra episode at the end of the month is going to be about Appalachian Oddities, which is this kind of oddities shop but one of the co-owners there she does tours at Transylvania Lunatic Asylum so she's going to kind of tell us a little bit about the history and lore of you know ghost investigations and and fun things like that along with some history and tell us a little bit about her amazing shop that she has that integrates history from the the Lunatic Asylum. So that's what we have in store for you coming up this month and I'm very excited and the purpose of me doing these extra bonus episodes is because come November I'm going to have the Patreon open and available and it's going to have bonus episodes like the ones that we're showing here so I'm giving you a little taste of what those episodes will be like. All right, so all that aside, of course, you can go see pictures of today's episode at www.curatorschoicepodcast.com and on Facebook and on Instagram. And let's go ahead and just get rolling right into our episode speaking with Larry Woods at the Museum of American Glass.
1: Museum of American Glass Glass, in West Virginia.
0: Okay, is there more than one?
1: There are a couple that will use a similar name but it's in different places like I'm not sure if Corning calls themselves Museum of American Glass um, in our case our with the exception of those few pieces that I showed you that came from ancient Rome our glass is American made and it's from anywhere in the United States so it could be Indiana it could be out in California it can be in you know wherever uh, most of the glass, was focused around the East Coast Uh, and by the time it moved West there was a few less companies but uh, any anybody that makes American-made glass we have it, and we'll we'll display it
0: and so when you first walk in you know you see the Blanco man Blanco man Blanco man and then you come inside and I mean honestly it's just rows and rows and rows and rows of all different kinds of glass and you were walking me through and you know you had the front desk replaced and um, the
1: mural on the side of the building.
0: The mural is pretty spectacular as well, but you it were is. just speaking earlier about the, the purpose of the museum and then also all of the, almost everyone here is a volunteer. Absolutely. So the only people who are the paid people are the front desks. Yes,
1: we have two two young ladies that uh, work part-time. They have other jobs in Weston, but they work uh, part-time as our front desk staff. So they handle the, the general public coming in. They uh, print off all of the books and will collate the books and mail those out. They take care of all of the applications for membership, all that sort of stuff, the sales from the gift shop. So they handle all the things that on a day-to-day basis. But uh, they there are only two paid staff.
0: So everybody else is a volunteer?
1: Everyone else is volunteer. And we have volunteers that do everything from the display work to accessioning work to uh, uh, getting Glass Ready for Sale, that is Excess class. Because when somebody donates a collection, um, one of the stipulations is if we already have it in our collection, that we have the right then to, to sell the excess. And you have to because you just don't have enough room uh, and you're not going to throw it away. So this way uh, it goes to the museum and all the proceeds are right at the museum.
0: How did this museum get its start?
1: Started 28 years ago. And it began as an idea to have an organization dedicated to American glass research and, and uh, very quickly decided that they would start collecting glass and have a museum. Uh, after about three years down the street on West Avenue here in Weston, they, uh, there was a one-room museum, if you will. It was a very small space. That stayed in existence until about 2006 and this building became available. This building used to be uh, started as a Woolworths. So one portion of the building was a Woolworths. Woolworths went out of business and J.C. Penny took it over and there had been other little uh, stores next to it, but the whole thing Penny took over and this was a J. C. Penny building. When they sold it in 2006, we acquired it and had a fundraiser over a couple of years and we finally had a mortgage burning so that we owned the building. And as you walk through the building, you'll notice on the ceilings, one portion of the building, which is the oldest portion, have the, the uh, pressed tin. And then you go to the next section of the building over, and it's more of the acoustical tile, and then the gallery space is just a, uh, a more nondescript because it was an add-on. And then the, the uh, room that we're sitting in is our library, which was named after uh, a board member who is an emeritus board member now, Dorothy Doherty, one of the founders. And this is a glass research library with uh, several hundred volumes on American glass. And this is uh, where you can do your research. And we got it labeled so that you can see where the, what you're looking for. And uh, it's a library that you don't take books out from, but you use while you're here.
0: Well, that's something I never really honestly thought about was American glass. So I, you know, I was just looking for museums to try to contact to find out. And I, I did a basic search of West Virginia because I hadn't been here yet. And the, uh, you know, the glass museum popped up. And I honestly never really thought about glass as having much of a of a history and then not really understanding the history of it in West Virginia. But it's huge here. The,
1: the, the, the history of, of, of glass, as, as we showed you with the, uh, uh, the Roman pieces, Glass began back in ancient Rome and ancient Egypt. And there was a, if you studied ancient Rome in college or in high school, there was a gentleman by the name of Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y, and he wrote uh, a history. Uh, And it was multi-volume and it was on everything under the sun. One volume is on glass. And he, according to him, there were Phoenicians on a ship that had gone ashore and had taken some saltpeter and they had that around a large bonfire and it was a huge bonfire. When they got up in the morning, there was glass melted that was as a result of the fire. And that's how they discovered that if you melt sand under intense heat with some other things mixed in it, you can actually get this substance.
0: When was this?
1: This was back, you know, several B.C., several years B.C. and. They started the process in Egypt and in Rome and they would use uh, molds made of sand and clay and they would start making things out of glass and they made vessels. So they would make perfume bottles and they made uh, goblets and other things. And you still see in uh, some of the European museums and things, uh, I think in MoMA, the museum in in New York, uh, there are some pieces there are very few left, obviously it's very breakable, it was fragile, but there were glass that was made and they also made jewelry out of glass. So glass dates back hundreds of years and then as, as you move forward into the more into the 14, 16 hundreds in Europe, they started making other kinds of glass and started making glass for windows. Uh, because if you have a house and you've got your window open, unless you put up something, that's going to block out the bugs ain't fun. You're going to get malaria. You got it. <laughs> so uh, window glass became huge and you make it a couple of different ways. They made it in what was called the Rondell method where you would take a gob of glass and you would blow it a, a bubble into it and it would expand and then you would poke a hole in the end so that it opens up and that's how you can get a vase as well. But then they would just spin it and gravity takes over and it just makes a huge disk. And as a result, they would get discs that would be like five feet, uh, five feet wide. Then they would put that into an annealing oven and let it cool down. And then they would cut the glass out of that. And it had these waves throughout it. And that's why in some of the old glass, you'll see those waviness. The other method was a German method. And that was a, a method where they would blow these huge cylinders. And there are photos of this being done and, and films being done in the... Uh, 1800s, early 1900s when photography and film finally uh, got in and you could actually see this being done and the blower would be standing on the second floor and he would get this gather of glass and there would be a hole in the floor and he would be pulling this back and forth and just swinging it and gravity would just enlarge this cylinder and some of the cylinders would be as much as eight feet tall and as the glass starts to cool it gets so that it holds its shape a little bit. Once it does that, and this took a lot of strength, they had to pull that up without breaking it, and then they would take it and put it into the annealing oven. They would cut it, and usually with another piece of hot glass, which actually cut it, it would slump over, and that would give you this long piece of uh, just glass, uh, like a rectangle. It would go through and and, uh, cool down, and then you would cut window panes out of that. And almost all the early glass in the United States, when when glass started to be made in the US, almost all the early ones, if you look at their records, they made window glass, as well as other things.
0: So the window glass was the most important thing that was made from glass
1: for quite a while. It was was one of the most important. The other were fruit jars, and they were vessels, and they were uh, for drinking. So they were uh, flasks, and that could be for uh, liquor. It could also be for fruit juices. It could also be for water. So they were the big ones, and then it didn't take long. And then other they they found that we had the the skilled workers came from England and Germany, and they would come to this country, and they started to make more decorative things because people, as they started to gain wealth, as we became more prosperous, that happened. And, and it starts yeah, and it starts in the East Coast, uh, first in Jamestown, Virginia. Didn't last very long. Then New Jersey, well, uh, Philadelphia, and up the coast. But the problem is. Glass needs 2,400 degrees to melt the sand. In order to get that, you need fuel. And the only fuel that was going to be available on the East Coast was wood. There was a saying at one point that a squirrel could start in Philadelphia and make its way all the way to Pittsburgh without ever hitting the ground because the forest was that thick. Well, you take a look at now. There's a lot less forest, and a lot of that is because those trees were cut down not just to clear the land, but to be used for everything from heat source to building uh, wagons, houses, you name it.
0: That's why on the east you have so few old-growth forests.
1: Absolutely. Now when you hit the Appalachian Mountains, you hit a barrier. Appalachians were harder to cross than the Rockies. That's why when you cross across the state of Pennsylvania and you want to go through the Appalachians, you're going through tunnels. That's how they bore through because it was easier than trying to build the roads up and over. Well in the early in the late 1700s early 1800s that was by Conestoga wagon. So coming over those mountains was exceedingly difficult. So they found that the only big pass they had was the Cumberland which is down in in Maryland. The glass factory started in Maryland but again the heat source was wood. They finally get move over they come into the Pittsburgh area which is the next area that they find. Well, that was that was Nirvana. And the reason was all of a sudden you found a new heat source, coal. At Mount Washington, just on the south side of Pittsburgh, that was called Coal Hill. That seam of coal went from Pennsylvania all the way to North Carolina. Largest seam of coal in the country. That coal was used, but when you have coal, you also have natural gas. And it wasn't long after that natural gas was discovered. And that was discovered in Western Pennsylvania as well. And they found that that was an even better source of coal. Because if you had, well, I'm old enough to remember, houses were heated by coal for years. And you always had to feed the furnace with the, uh, with the coal to keep the temperature. Keeping that temperature at the right level was kind of tough with coal, was doable, but it was hard natural gas, it was much easier. Once you got the gauges on, you could keep a constant temperature. That spurred the industrial revolution in Pittsburgh to begin with. Well, wasn't long after factories like the models that we have in the museum of the three glass factories in, in uh, Westmoreland County, they tended to be flimsy. They were made out of wood. You had fire in furnaces. Fires were common and they were common in all sorts of businesses. And when they burned, you either rebuilt or you moved to somewhere else. And the other surrounding areas were all in competition because they now had natural gas. So they were offering, and they used to call that smokestack chasing. They would try to get that industry to come to their community and build up and, and go there. And that offer tax incentives, free gas for X number of years, all sorts of things. And they moved out. Pittsburgh didn't mine so much at that time, although they had the majority of the glass factories early on, because they were also had the steel mills and they had brick factories and they had all this other industry. So there the competition didn't create quite as much of an issue. So you had the, the glass factories uh, that started migrating. So they met, went to Westmoreland County. And you had the three factories I talked to about, PPG glass made plate glass, Pittsburgh plate glass. And they moved up the Allegheny River and had four factories up there. And there were other factories as well. Uh, And they were making these huge windows because now all of a sudden they found that in Europe, you had something called department stores. And department stores, you want these large display windows. And plate glass was what was used. PPG had plate glass and they also had coatings. Unfortunately, today, they have no glass factories that are part of Pittsburgh plate glass. It's all coatings and their name is now just PPG. But for years, they were the, they were the leader in uh, plate glass, and uh, John Ford was one of the big founders of PPG, and it was just enormous. They then, the factory st- kept moving, and they moved next to Wheeling, West Virginia. Lots of natural gas in Wheeling, and Wheeling had many glass factories there, and then they started moving south in West Virginia, Morgantown, Seneca Glass, Morgantown Glass, and then kept moving farther south. Then you had them all through the what's now the I-79 corridor. And the other reason, the Monongahela River, flowing out of West Virginia, flowing north to Pittsburgh, gave you a natural source until trains came in of moving the, because that's the other key factory. People, the heat source, and the natural uh, resources, this area had all of it and they had the rivers. So West Virginia has the rivers that takes it up to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh has the Allegheny River, which comes from New York State down to Pittsburgh, the Monongahela, which comes north into uh, Pittsburgh, and then the Ohio River, which flows down to Cincinnati and all the way down to the Mississippi. All of a sudden you have a transportation system that can move glass everywhere. And all of the the, uh, factories kept growing up around there. So West Virginia was a huge glassmaking area as the glass factories closed in Pittsburgh. But from 1797 were the first two glass factories in Pittsburgh. And that was the New Geneva Glass Factory. And that was with um, Albert Gallatin, who had been the Secretary of Treasury with Thomas Jefferson. And you had uh, Isaac Craig and John O'Hara, who were two American uh, Revolutionary War generals. They became businessmen, and they opened the O'Hara Glass Factory in Pittsburgh. Shortly thereafter, glass exploded throughout Pittsburgh, and as I said, then into, into West Virginia, and then eastern Ohio. And the town we're in now, Western, at one point had five glass factories in this small town, operating at the same time. Wow. Now there's none. There are very few glass factories left in the United States and in West Virginia, other than Blanco glass, which still makes art glass and stained glass, down in Milton, the Davis Lynch factory, Wismark, and um, there's one other. Other than that, there are very, very few. There's Libby in Ohio and Lancaster, Lancaster, Ohio still has Anchor Hocking and they still make Corning glass. Uh, there are some, some glass factories very specialized but nothing on the scale that it used to be. So from that late 1700s up until after the Civil War, Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio, and West Virginia was the hub of glass making in the world.
0: Well, and you were talking a little bit earlier about all the different things that glass used to be used for and even today. And I was really surprised at a lot of the ones that you mentioned because you don't really think about it, especially now we have just a bunch of plastic. So we use plastic for everything. But really, before plastic became one of the main sources, sure, we, I mean, it's like even the the spray paint can that you were
1: talking about. Right, Um, marbles. Um, Aside from being something that was used for toys, marbles were used as reflectives on stop signs and other kind of road signs. And you would actually have the marbles that would have been, been epoxied onto the sign rather than just have this now reflective paints. And as you drove down the street, uh or across a, uh, a train track, that would reflect the light and let you know, stop. It was all glass. Every can of spray paint has a little marble in it and that's because it doesn't rust. And when you shake it, that keeps the paint from uh, thickening up and you're able to keep that paint active for a lot longer. And they're all pieces of glass. You look at things and say, well, I don't think we use glass very much. Well, I'm looking through a glass block right now and and the window. You look at the windows as you walk in. Now glasses are made out of various substances and plastics to make them lighter. They were almost all glass. We have the glass eyes and you would make actual eyeballs for people that had lost their eye. They were made of glass. Uh,
0: Fiberglass.
1: Fiberglass. When fiberglass came in the space shuttle. One of the pieces that we've got that we got from Senator Robert Byrd who was the senior senator in the uh, United States Senate. He was from West Virginia. He was considered the historian of the Senate. He was an absolute character. And he made sure that we acquired that one space shuttle tile from the Space Shuttle Columbia. So it actually went into space, came back and then came to us. So it traveled the longest of any piece of glass here in the museum
0: looking at it, I mean, you really would have no idea. It kind of just right. looks a little bit bigger than a regular brick. It looks like a brick. And then when you pick it up, I mean, it's, it's, it's like styrofoam. It exactly. feels like you're holding styrofoam.
1: Exactly, but the chemical consistency of it is such, as your partner here said, uh, it can be put into a heat source made glowing red, and when you take it out, you can grab it with your hand and you won't burn it. It's because it just doesn't absorb the heat, and that was used as the keeping the shuttle able to withstand the temperatures of reentry from space.
0: So the entire shuttle was covered in these little squares right. of funky glass.
1: Right. That's because in the, in the early days, the, uh, uh, the Apollo missions and the Friendship missions, the, those Gemini missions, they were all rockets that would send the capsule into orbit and then it would return and you had the heat shield at the bottom, and you also had shielding on the outside, and that was an ablative material that would burn away. And that worked very well for that. But now you had a shuttle that's a reusable aircraft, and it's much bigger, it's holding multiple people, and you have to have something different on it. So they came up with this process with those bricks, which are those uh, silica bricks, which would fit on top all over the ones on the bottom, would burn more because it took the brunt of the re-entry through the atmosphere, but they maintained the, they maintained the safety. We never lost a, a shuttle because of the heat shields. The only ones that were lost were because of an explosion. So uh, they did their job and it was glass that was used. And it's glass is a substance that was used for everything. For years, plates, they would have dinner sets were made out of glass, coffee cups, uh, Nestle, when they had their uh, advertising for many years, they had the earth in a, in a glass cup and they were, they were giveaways when you would buy Nestle coffee, uh, instant coffee. And they were highly sought after. They were just made for the, the, the general market. So there was glass being made for just about every purpose you can imagine. And this museum specifically tries to honor all of it. And that's whether it's a common bottle whether it's uh, some extraordinary thing that you'd never expect, whether it's a float that used to fit into a commode, whether it's uh, a piece of advertising piece.
0: Or one of your many marbles from your marble One of the marbles
1: from the various marble companies. You name it, we're going to try to make sure we have uh, at least some of it to show people and honor. Because there are so many people and so many factors that are part of that there's the beauty of the glass itself. When you walk through this museum, the colors just strike you. The lighting shines off it. You look up at our our shades. All of our shades are American-made glass shades. Some had been in churches. Some had been in buildings. They've been in houses. Some very grand, some very common. But all of them intricately made. So you look at all of those and you just marvel at that. But then you look down at the other colors and all the other things. In order to make that, you need the skilled worker, particularly in the early days, where they were doing it all by hand, and a blowpipe, just a long pipe with a a hole that runs through it that they blow in, blows a bubble, and they have to then work that piece of glass to get the desired shape and and the colors by putting it into the different types of glass. And then to the machine-made glass, where you put it into a mold, in order to make the molds, there's a skilled laborer that had to carve that often by hand, now by machine, but early days all by hand. And you can make them in sand, you can make them in clay, you can make them in wood. And most of them for commercial work was made in iron and they were, or steel and they were made and carved out with chisels and hammers, intricately done. And you have to remember when they're making those, one little mistake and you're done. You have to do it all over again because you don't just take out a delete key and delete it or a piece of whiteout like you used to do on a typewriter and erase it.
0: Or a mess up in a podcast that and you a, just to er- erase right. on Audacity. Or an
1: edit in a podcast. <laughs> you don't have that luxury. So the skill of those workers, the skill of the chemists that knew the formulas and developed the formulas so that you could get the consistency. The other thing too is if you make a red, for example, which was a difficult color to make, when you made that red, you wanted every batch of glass that you made to come out the same. If you screw it up or if that that formula has just a little inconsistency, every batch is different. So from a production standpoint, if you're selling the glass and that's what these companies were doing, you know, it was it was worthless. So the chemist was worth their weight in gold. So you have all of these different skill sets, but all of the different workers within the glass factory, the decorators, decorators were oftentimes women women tended not to have jobs within glass factories uh, as the blowers or gaffers or carry-in boy, carry-out boys, which were the titles of those those people. Uh, But they tended to be the decorators. So they would do the painting and they would do all of those kind of decorations and they were highly skilled. They had children that worked in the glass factories until the child labor laws and the glass factories were the last industry to finally give over and eliminate child labor, but they had kids on some records as young as 10 years old that would work in a glass factory. So this was, this was a, uh, a, a labor intensive and very proprietary t- to the city or the town that it was in. People just loved their glass factories because it, it maintained uh, the business. It produced bread on the table and that was an important factor. Frank Fenton of the Fenton Glass Company in Ohio, which extremely well-known, one of the most famous collecting uh, glasses in, in, the, in the world now, Fenton Glass, he, used to say, he got challenged one time from collectors and, and he stopped him and said, don't forget, we were out to make product. We were out to make a living. We weren't out to make collectibles. We wanted to make a living. We wanted to make as many of these as we could. We wanted to sell them. It's what kept the bread on the table of our workers. And that's exactly what their job was. So that's what we do at this museum. It's trying to honor all of those people. And the city and the place that we're in now, the reason we're here is because there were five glass factories. There were so many in West Virginia. We're close to Pittsburgh. We're close to Ohio. People can get here. So those glass factories where people still have an affinity because they may have uh, grandfathers or whatever that are part of that, they're going to be able to come here and see some of that heritage.
0: I mean, you guys have an amazing representation here. Every every kind of item, everything that was made, every kind of place that made glass. Absolutely. It's all done here.
1: Absolutely. I'll take you upstairs and show you one thing because we normally don't go up into our storage area because our elevator is a freight elevator and it's ancient. Okay. So I don't let people Fair. take that, so we walk and it's a little bit tricky. But what I want to show you, are uh, we? there was a mold company in Zanesville, Ohio that went out of business anchor molds, and they made contemporary glass, and they gave us any mold that we wanted when oh, they went wow. out of business. So we have molds for Coke bottles. We have molds oh. for Mrs. Butterworth uh, syrup. We have molds from a number of those kind of things, and you can see what those molds look like, more contemporary, but now they're out of business as well. Mrs. Butterworth, they're plastic. You don't don't find a a glass Mm -hmm. bottle anymore, but this was the Mrs. Butterworth bottle. Uh, Coke bottles are a niche thing, everything's metal. So as those things went out of, uh, changed, well, in Clarksburg just up the road was the Acro Agate Company and they made children's dishes. And you had a number of other companies that made children's sets and kids played with glass children's sets. They can get cut with glass if mm-hmm. they break. But nonetheless, they were they were toys that you would buy sets of glass and mm-hmm. primarily little girls would play tea set and whatever and they would have these marvelous sets with cups and saucers and teas and sugars, etc. Well, they were they were just huge until metal and plastic. And when the plastic came in, they started using the argument well, if you break a piece of glass, your child can get hurt. These are dangerous. But if you use our plastic, well, what they don't tell you, if the plastic breaks, they can get cut into plastic too. But nonetheless, that was the argument and plastic became...
0: Plastic really just took over. Exactly. It's completely taken over. Exactly. But one of the things that really for me stood out whenever I came into your museum, I mean, you have all these amazing glass collections, mm-hmm. but there is a fantastic dollhouse yes. that is completely made of glass. Yes, and it's I mean it's not just it's like a doll mansion I should say it is so can you tell us a little bit about what what is that <laughs>
1: Sure. well I brought I brought the cheat sheet so that I make sure I don't lose any of the Fair enough. Uh, the information it's actually a 13-room dollhouse uh, it was made by a woman by the name of Linda Young who goes by the trade name of Lady Jane and she's in Florida and she made ter- glass stained glass terrariums well Mrs. Uh, Barbara Bischoff lived in Chicago and had seen her work and talked to her and asked if she would make a glass dollhouse for her. Lady Jane decided, I'm not so sure I can do this. This It's maybe more than I can chew. But she experimented with it and had to figure out the engineering of the metal that you use to hold those pieces together that would be strong enough to hold the multiple levels because there's two different levels two floors of the glass house, and they all interconnect. And so she did all of that, figured that she would use it, and for her 50th wedding anniversary, this was the present for Mr. Mrs. Bischoff. And her husband went along with it. He joked with her at one point and said, you realize this is growing so large it's costing more than an automobile. And <laughs> she just laughed, but she loved it, and it's what she wanted. It has everything under the sun. There's a room that you marveled at which is this very small room and you look inside and here's what looks like a goldfish tank with fish and it's rotating. And what it is, is a paperweight with a light underneath it. And when you look at it, it looks like it's an aquarium. We have a doll. We have a bedroom with three little girls playing on the bed and a little dollhouse in the corner. There's a kitchen. There's a, a paintings on the wall, but there are glass everywhere. All made out of over 1,200 pieces of glass, stained glass. And Shirley Stivick, who's her daughter, once her mother died and it was put into storage, donated it to the museum. And uh, I've had the honor to meet Mrs. Stivick and her husband and had them down to the museum for a spring tea and we tried, we were an experiment for one of our fundraisers, and it was a mother-daughter tea, and we used glass from the museum for them to have the tea in our gallery, and the highlight was the dollhouse, so that all the little girls and the mothers can come over and explore the dollhouse. And Shirley was just blown away. She was in tears. It was such a, uh, a tribute to her mother to see this. It's one of a kind. She's never done another one like it. And it's just a spectacular thing. You really
0: have to see it, because I know we're kind of describing the rooms and describing it, but really you have to see it because it's, I mean, it's the most impressive dollhouse I've ever seen.
1: Well, the largest section of the dollhouse weighs over a hundred pounds. And the way it was stored, it it was unique, but it worked. And it just protected everything. Now the problem, the only problem we had is the interior, the pieces, the miniatures, many of those were not with the collection. And Shirley didn't know what happened to those. So we have a board member who loves miniatures, who have been finding pieces that fit to the right scale that would be appropriate for the dollhouse. And we've had that those pieces inserted. So it's pretty much fully decorated on the interior. And it's just a, a spectacular piece that it's got to be seen to believe.
0: Mm-hmm. I could live there, no problem. Exactly. <laughs> and then the other kind of larger than life collection that you guys have that you wanted. I feel like you tried to cheat. Instead of picking one piece, you picked a collection. <laughs> I'm noticing a theme. Many people yes, do that. Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes.
0: But tell us about this spectacular
1: collection. Well, the Massman Collection. Mr. Massman had owned two businesses, highly successful businessmen, and he sold them for a profit, obviously. And he became a Broadway producer. And he loved Stu Ben Art Class. And Stu Ben has been making Art glass for many, many years, and it's considered the finest crystal that you can find because of its reflective uh, characteristics. These pieces are not only made in shapes like little teddy bears and some other things, animals, but also are carved. And there are workers that would do this intricate carving on the pieces some of them would have gold there's one piece that has a fish that's in the in the piece of glass and there's an eskimo who's on top of it with a spear that's going through it trying to and as you walk around it it changes how you view it the largest piece of glass in the collection is a 35 a 33 and a half pound piece of noah with all of the animals in pairs carved in the robe of noah And we got the collection because when mr massman died he specified that uh, a museum get his collection have it on display for a minimum of five years in its entirety and would not be allowed to be sold for that five-year period Uh, it was offered to a museum in california the huntington museum and they just couldn't do it for that length of time and for this size of a display museums have a certain finite space limitation and I'm constantly, I'm the dad that has to slap the wrist of our archivist who when people want to give us collections can't say no and I have to keep telling them we can't take everything. Uh, And that's what happened when we got some molds, they gave us whatever we wanted and we limited based on what we really needed as opposed to everything because there's a limitation in space. So they couldn't Uh, the Huntington Museum couldn't take it, so they recommended us. We took it, uh, bought the cases, did a fundraiser to buy the cases, and uh, purchased the specially made shelves that are thick enough to maintain the weight of those pieces, and uh, LED lights to display that, and it's three large cases showing, displaying this collection. Over 200 pieces of Stuben art class. Again, a -a one-of-a-kind uh, collection, you're not going to see anything like it.
0: And he couldn't even display all of his own pieces no. at once because he didn't even have the room. Yes,
1: he, he, he displayed it about half at a time because he couldn't put everything out. I mean, it takes such a large amount of space. So we've been extremely fortunate with that collection. And it's, uh, it's just a striking thing as you walk into the front door of the museum. Well, first, as you, as you drive down West Avenue, our main avenue, the side of the building had been painted red. And we had a grant, small grant, and then fundraised the rest of it to paint a mural on the side of the the wall. We just dedicated it about a month and a half ago. Finally got, because of COVID, finally got it finished. A local West Virginia artist, Jesse Corliss, absolutely fabulous muralist, would come on weekends, use a bucket truck that the city allowed us to use, would get up and paint We had a group called Lewis County First, which is a volunteer organization that volunteers on a number of projects throughout the county. They pressure washed the wall for us and then they painted the wall white to give a canvas for Jesse. And then Jesse took the items from the museum itself and then painted them. And he did it in such a way so that we have pieces that are crystal, like a crystal dinosaur, that when you look through it, you can see the glass piece that's behind it, which is Rebecca at the Well, which is a, a blue cobalt blue piece, and you can see the reflection through the dinosaur. And the detail work that he got on it is extraordinary, particularly when you consider he's painting on brick. He's not painting on a fat surface. So we were just blown away with the ability to, to come up with that. It's been fabulous, because the museum doesn't charge an admission. And we are totally volunteer, with the exception of our uh, two front desk staff. Everybody else is a volunteer, whether it's volunteers that do the displays in the windows, whether it's volunteers that do accession work, volunteers that price and put together the glass that we're able to sell in our gift shop. Uh, They do everything. And we have fundraisers. They'll bring food in and whatever. And we have an event in uh, February for Valentine's Day, Chocolate Feast. It's been huge. We did it last year as a drive-through, didn't know if we would be able to pull it off, and the volunteers put together these bags of chocolate. They sold out before the people actually came. It was that popular. So it's within the community, we're very well known. We keep, uh, we keep no admissions so that even though this is a community that's struggled uh, because of the lack of industry as industries have left, People can just come into the the museum, we just ask for donations, and uh, leave it up to them to support us that way. And then we have memberships, and you could be a member for various levels, which will help us to keep the lights on and to keep the collection going and uh, maintaining it. And we've been at it for 28 years total.
0: So if you are at all interested in this fascinating story, I mean, you can come and do a free admission and buy something from the gift shop.
1: Absolutely. You can come six days a week from um, 930 to 5, and you can come on Sundays from 1 to 5. We're open seven days a week. We're only closed for a couple of the holidays. Other than that, we're wide open, and we're looking forward to seeing anybody. You know, we'd just love to have people come down and see it.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on my podcast and sharing this history with us. My pleasure. It was wonderful. So who knew about American glass being such a strong history, right? So, one thing that Larry did want me to mention to you guys at the end of the episode was anyone who is interested they are very much so looking for people who might have something to offer to their museum. They're struggling a little bit with you know some of the funding that they have. they are completely nonprofit and they are volunteer so anything that can be um, sent their way and they said if anybody out there is looking to do an endowment, maybe even. Or if you wanted to do some memberships, all of the proceeds from that go to the museum and um, they're always looking for interested parties. So if you are interested, I have included their link in the, bottom of, in the bottom of the description and you can easily just go on there and see what you can do to help out one of these amazing museums.